Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. I'm your host, Ajua Robinson, and I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a new feature of Living Proof. In addition to listening, subscribing to, and sharing podcasts, you can now rate and write a review of each episode of Living Proof. To rate or write a review of a podcast, just go to our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu forward slash podcast and click on the create your own review button. We look forward to hearing from you. Hi and welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series at the University of Buffalo's School of Social Work. I'm your host, Peter Sabota. Here at UB School of Social Work, we have recently revised our master's curriculum to reflect our commitment to the promotion of social justice and the protection of human rights. In addition, we've embraced a trauma-informed perspective that views trauma as both a cause and effect of structural oppression, power differentials, and of disproportionate distribution of material and social capital. In this podcast, we'd like to focus on human rights and to acknowledge that typical discussions of human rights tend to focus on individuals and individual cases and not on underlying conditions. We would also like to honor Social Work's long history of interdisciplinary collaboration by exploring a political scientist's analysis of this topic. Our guest today is UB's own Dr. Claude Welch. Professor Welch uses his book, Economic Rights in Canada and the United States, as a context to move beyond conventional discussions of civil and political human rights and focuses on economic rights and the structural aspects of our society that maintain the status quo for problems like huge income disparities, poverty, and the lack of quality low-income housing. In the latter part of our discussion, Professor Welch suggests practical actions for those concerned with the protection of economic human rights. Claude Welch, PhD, is Distinguished Service Professor and Professor of Political Science at the University of Buffalo, where he has enthralled students for 45 years. He's the author of numerous publications in the form of 14 books, many book chapters, and articles in scholarly journals. A full description of his CV would require a separate podcast. Professor Welch's current research and writing interests include the impacts of non-governmental organizations, notably on human rights, civil-military relations, and democratization following authoritarian rule. Please join me as I discuss economic human rights in the United States with Professor Claude Welch. We join the conversation as we were discussing his book. The book is entitled Economic Rights in Canada and the United States, and it grew from recognition that we are two countries that have a host of interconnections. We share the same colonial background in British rule. We have trade each day well in excess of $1 billion. And yet we have some very intriguing differences. One of the most important of these comes in the area of economic rights. And in this respect, there is an international document known as, I call it, the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. It's been around basically since the end of World War II, came into effect in 1966. Canada ratified it immediately. The United States has not done so. 
And indeed, for many of the intervening 33 years, American rhetoric has been one to say, all right, for the United States, our concern is much more for civil and political rights. We are not as interested in or concerned with economic, social, and cultural rights. And there are reasons for that in the background of our society, when we achieved independence, and I think in the nature of the capitalist system that we have, which exists in somewhat more modified form in Canada, and which it has taken a different format in the social democracies of Western Europe in particular. So that's the context for your book. We were very interested in having you join our podcast series because our audience are largely social workers, and we're concerned with many of the things that you talk about in your book. But what I've, as we were talking before we started today, when many people talk about human rights and economic rights abuses, we tend to talk about other countries. We talk about either specific people or groups. Yet what I liked about your book, and I think many people did, is that you make the point that there are structural aspects, whether they're created deliberately or not, contribute to especially economic human rights abuses. Could you say a little bit more about that? Sure, I'd be glad to do so. And let me say a few things as a political scientist, since this is my background. Right. Um, it took a constitutional amendment for the United States to get an income tax. <laughs> the 16th Amendment, because according to the original draft of 1787, it was only on important duties, basically, that the federal government financed itself. The end of the 19th century was a time of incredible inequalities, widespread strikes because unions did not have the right to be recognized or to organize people. There was significant government repression. There were huge contrasts between what the lowest paid worker received and what the higher plutocrat did. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, these are the same kind of times as we live in now because the income inequality in the United States as of 2009 is as great as it was in 1899. So mm -hmm. how have we mm -hmm. progressed? <laughs> well, yes, you know, <laughs> trade unions are there, but their percentage mm -hmm. of populace that's covered has mm -hmm. dr diminished dramatically, perhaps 12 to 13 to 14 percent, and largely in the public sector. American manufacturing is down. 47 million Americans lack health insurance. A huge contrast with Canada, where one of the points of great pride of having a national scheme of health protection that is highly regarded. So how about the number of homeless? At one point, the co-editor and I thought about calling this book Sleeping Under Bridges. <laughs> and that comes from a writer whose pen name was Anatole France, and he said, the, in effect, the great joys of the capitalist system is that it gives rich and poor an equal right to sleep under the bridges <laughs> at night. Well, that's fair. <laughs> so when you think of this combination of uh, poverty, of absence of housing, uh, nutritional lacks you know, that may exist, mm -hmm. dramatic income inequalities, in Canada 10 to 1, in the United States 14 to 1 or higher, these are recipes for social unrest, this, you know, can be and you know has been manifested at times. And the U.S. has been accused, maybe rightly so, of seeing itself as unique and different from less developed countries, but you've already addressed that. But could I pick up something? You sure. said the U.S. accused. The United States is proud of that. Yeah. And we, and I say <laughs> Thank you. Sure. And we've long <laughs> since said, okay, we are the country set on a hill. 
we experienced the first anti-colonial revolution. You know, we set forth mm. a standard of equality and justice that, sure, met well-off landed white males until the Civil Rights Act, 1964. But you know, the point was taken that the United States was to be based on a representative democracy, mm -hmm. which was distinctive in the world at that time. So that example did have an impact in the Western Hemisphere, to some extent in France and through France throughout many parts of Europe. So I think it's fair to say that the United States started out in a distinctive fashion, and because of our economic and later military success, mm -hmm. we assumed that we had this God-given right, in effect, to assume our ideas were correct, and therefore the rest of the world should fall in line behind us. Mm -hmm. The best way to achieve civil and political rights, let's say in Afghanistan, let's introduce elections mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. offhand. That'll mm -hmm. do it. Yep. Uh, and economic Stellar, yeah. rights and so forth, well, it's a poor country, but you know, let's get a political system in order first and everything will follow. Exactly. Many other countries have followed a different path. Mm -hmm. So my attempt to sugarcoat the earlier statement has been corrected quite well, thank you. The, could you even be more specific about how you think capitalism as a system is really just built to foster inequality? Well, I think it can be built so that it allows inequality to exist unless conscious steps are taken against it. For example, let's take the notions from Adam Smith and on that purchasers will look for the lowest price. Why is Walmart the most successful, you know, of all retail chains in the world? It's because it offers the lower price, very definitely, and consumers recognize that and will go to it. Adam Smith used the example of those who had manufactured a pin, and it's a very simple thing it would seem to manufacture a simple pin, mm -hmm. but, you know, there are ways of shaving costs. Well, let's imagine that somebody invents the better mousetrap, the better pin, mm -hmm. or the better software operating system and achieves a monopoly or an oligopoly. Mm -hmm. In that respect, <laughs> you can have fabulous fortunes built, whether it's the Andrew Carnegie's of a century ago, the Bill Gates of the present time, the Steve Jobs, and so forth. So under these circumstances, unless there are ways of ensuring some spreading out of those benefits, inequalities can multiply. Now, what are the ways of mitigating those inequalities? The income tax that I spoke about would be one major step. And that came, what, at the time of World War I, when there were great revenue needs and when the glaring inequalities had become the subject of a lot of expose journalism, you know, long overdue journalism. I would say that it can be mitigated by federal laws that cover an entire country that do speak to the rights of groups that are lower in society. Immigrants, for example, uh, people of different uh, ethnic backgrounds, women, people with disabilities of various sorts, those who have been perhaps traumatized by service and war. All of these are examples. Now, there is a complication. Both Canada and the United States are federal countries. So that in Canada, there are provinces. In the United States, there are states. And each can have its own laws. In Canada, there is a tradition whereby the provinces have somewhat greater latitude so that 
let's say Alberta, mm -hmm. with its oil and natural gas resources, a bit akin to Texas. It has its own source that will go its own way. <laughs> then there is Quebec, you know, with its unique status as a francophone heritage. Right. In the United States, I think we'd all agree that there's a huge contrast between, let's say, a liberal state like much of New York contrasted with a very conservative state such as Idaho. Let's recognize that. And in the United States, then, different jurisdictions, different ideas. Whose responsibility is it to take care of those who are, let's say, illegal immigrants? Right. In California and Florida and Texas, um, in some states along the northern boundary, this is a major question, very indeed. Mm -hmm. Well, all the things that you mentioned in terms of people who are disabled and women, racial and ethnic minorities, they don't tend to be the folks who have economic power, but they do tend to have numbers on their side. However, there doesn't seem to be a social structure that brings those people together anymore, that organizes them so that they can spend the capital they have, which is the large numbers of people. Well, I'll say yes and no in the following respect. Okay. And again, we're speaking, you as a person in social welfare and work, right. and I'm speaking as a political scientist. That's why we have uh, First of all, you know, they are not coherent groups. The people who are poor are deeply concerned about next day's meal, or maybe even the next meal. What about the rent? Where am I going to sleep tonight? Do they have time to register to vote? <laughs> that is fundamental. Right. And I think this is you know, where the political science side can enter mm -hmm. in. What groups are effective? Oh, AARP. Well, no, let's take a look at senior citizens. You know, there are a lot of them, and they are very well organized. They vote, unlike youth. Youth who are very affected by, let's say, the cuts in funding for public higher education, mm -hmm. just as those younger in the educational ladder in primary and secondary mm -hmm. are being affected by reductions in state assistance or mm -hmm. by local funding in many, many other places. Mm -hmm. I would say it's not a question just of whether they're organized or not. Mm -hmm. It is whether that organization is then used for political objectives, for voting, for getting the candidates in that will pass legislation that will help these aims to be achieved. I'm going to read you a sentence, if I could, and I'm not sure what its source is, so I'm not even sure that it's a word for word, but if you could just react to it. Society tends to restrict their indignation or anger to human rights abuses that can be lessened without risk to fundamental economic relationships. That's very interesting. All right, let's try it in the following way. Okay. There certainly is a tendency to react to the mutilated child. A group that's been incredibly effective over many years is Amnesty International. Mm -hmm. It has selected certain people who are prisoners of conscience, or who are symbols of repression, civil war, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And these individuals make it possible to say, ah, here is someone or some situation with which I can identify. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of economics, yes, it cost a great deal to enforce rights. Let me take an example. Mm -hmm. We all should agree that there are basic human rights. I've talked mm -hmm. about food, housing, health, reasonable health, but I would also add the need to security. 
Now, security can be very expensive, but it can be some very much more expensive to have three strikes and you're out system of locking people up for life mm-hmm. when you may have had three minor infractions. And it costs far more for programs of that sort than is the case for sending them to a very high-cost university. Now, economics, well, people can be very affected by looking at starving orphans in another country. But um, let's suppose these are children of illegal immigrants in the United States. Mm -hmm. I think that there are many areas in this country where we'd say, why are they here? They shouldn't be. Right. Send them back. I've heard that. Ah, okay. (laughs) All right. (laughs) In your hometown, which we will not identify. Um, Yeah, Uh, Fox News. All right. Um, You may feel that you've already addressed this, but I'll ask it directly in case you want to elaborate. How does a country like the United States kind of posture credibility on human rights and economic human rights when we really have, as you've described very well, a lot to look into the mirror about. How do we we don't talk about economic human rights. We don't. That's, you're right. <laughs> no, that, that's correct. Yeah, you're right. You're you know, right. So what we that's do is we true. trumpet you know, civil and political rights. Mm-hmm. Let me give you some examples of it. Mm-hmm. Since the mid-1970s, the U.S. Department of State has published an annual report on human rights practices in every country in the world. Mm-hmm. This is an incredibly detailed and helpful document with respect to what are called the rights of the person, personal integrity, such as freedom from torture. You can get a great deal of information about the death penalty and how it is carried out. But there is far less attention given to economic, social, and cultural rights. Indeed, they are put under the general area of sort of called labor rights. Right. and the like. Right. So there is a way in which American perceptions are carried out through what had been this congressional mandate of the mid-1970s. It's a fascinating document to read. It's readily available on the State Department website. It comes out every March, and uh, governments will react to it Right. very strongly when they are criticized. Mm-hmm. Regularly, U.S. State Department gets blasted by China and Israel mm-hmm. are the two countries that have been the most consistent. Yeah. Germany has also been very much concerned because of the way the United States has mm-hmm. criticized its treatment of the church. And I'm putting that in uh, quotes of Scientology. We began by talking about the United States and Canada. It appears that, you know, we both have a lot of things that we could do better as countries. It seems to me that Canada seems to be much more responsive to either criticism or proclamations from international bodies than the United States has. That's correct. That is correct. Right. Canada, for example, has been a consistent participant in UN peacekeeping forces. Its famous leader, Lester Pearson, took an active role in UN matters. Mm -hmm. There's a document known as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was adopted by the UN General Assembly in December 1948. One of its main authors was a Canadian named John Humphrey, and indeed he Mm -hmm. wrote the first draft of it. So there is this involvement over time that has been consistent. I think it's part and parcel of Canada's international outlook. It's one of few countries that is officially bilingual. 
It has mm -hmm. a vast land area, has the second largest in the world. Mm -hmm. It is a state that has a kind of lower level military profile, but it's caught between two superpowers, or at least what <laughs> had been two superpowers. <laughs> right. In many ways, what you're making an argument for, I think, is for change, at least on part of the United States. For re-examination. Yeah, okay. I think that's fundamental. All right. And that re-examination itself can, I hope, lead to change, but it's going to be gradual. And certainly there are some areas in which change has started, but the evidence of major progress is mm -hmm. scanty. What do you think the costs of would be to the United States, and I guess this is a way of talking about barriers, if the United States protected economic human rights to a much larger degree than we do now? Well, that's an impossible question to answer, and it's, the issue of it is, you know, how far do you go? Let me take the area of health care. The most costly part of health care comes in terminal weeks. Now, is this something, to be brutally honest, that it is worth spending money on? Mm -hmm. My first wife died of breast cancer. Oh. And there is you know, no question mm -hmm. that in the last you know, couple of weeks you know, of her life that there were huge costs. These were in the days before hospice, mm -hmm. which would have been a far more humane way for her to die mm -hmm. than in a bed in Roswell Park. Yeah. So uh, this is you know, one area. We've got to make a fundamental decision there. Mm -hmm. Another would have to do with food itself. We spend huge amounts in agricultural subsidies, and yet one effect of this subsidy has been to produce too damn much corn, <laughs> which is then turned into fructose, high mm -hmm. um, sugar content syrup, mm -hmm. which then goes into food, which contributes to obesity, which is a really severe public health threat. So consider you know, that uh, issue. There's a political problem because of the distribution of power you know, within mm -hmm. the United States Congress. Mm -hmm. Take the area of the fact that the poor, generally speaking, don't vote who's there and organized for them. They're you know, rabble-rousers who want to upset the system right. and what's been run by the lobbyists and the middle class and upper middle class you know, for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. So change itself you know, has got to be gradual. Mm -hmm. The United States is a country of reform rather than revolution, despite 1776 <laughs> and the Civil one. War. Yeah. And <laughs> Civil War was a revolution, too. Mm. I think that would be important to say. Mm -hmm. And we have had social transformations, but most of them have been gradual. What do you think the practical implications are of the ideas you've spoken about today for you know, academics, students, or really anybody who cares about economic human rights and their impacts not only here in the United States but around the world? What can individual people do? Well, there's a very simple matters in the following sense. Make your voice heard. That could be a simple thing such as write letters, whether it's to the media, whether it's to representatives in Congress. Take stands on specific bills that may be important. Show up at uh, meetings that you know, may deal with these questions, even at the local level. Mm -hmm. Go and vote. Yeah. Uh, if you can do so financially, support mm -hmm. uh, particular worthwhile causes with checks. Mm -hmm. Take time. That's, you know, maybe possible, and do some volunteer work. 
take a serious look at your own kitchen pantry. Uh-huh. Ah, there may be stuff there that you know still hasn't reached the expiration date, and you say, hmm, why did I buy that? I, I don't mean some smoked oysters, but you know stuff that you know really would be needed, you know, at the food pantry. So there's you know little steps like that. This doesn't take any money at all, but for those people who can log on to the internet. You can go to a place called thehungersite.org, I think it is. Mm -hmm. Thehungersite, all one word, dot org. Or go to thebreastcancersite.org. Mm -hmm. You'll find a series of organizations that are linked that do good things. Mm -hmm. Click on that, something is given every day at no cost. There are corporate sponsors, mm -hmm. Starbucks of the world and so forth. Another one, freerice.org. Now, that gives you a vocabulary test. How well do you know English? It's a great way of teaching your um, high schoolers for the SAT, mm -hmm. but it's also fun <laughs> you know, to see how far you can get in terms of some increasingly obscure English words. Every time you get an answer right, some grains of rice are given to people who need it. So that's a practical step. Many practical steps. And I really was thinking when you were talking about what can happen on the local level, when you said that, I immediately thought about local school board and the school district. And many of the things and issues, social, political, economic things, are talked about mm -hmm. in a concentrated area there. And people largely are not involved at that level. And there's a great opportunity. I wanted to thank you very much for taking the time. I know you have nothing else to do. So I have a good, strong sense that this you made time for us today and for sharing your expertise. And as always, it was fun. Well, I will put in a plug. If anybody wants to purchase the book or you know, recommend it to the library, once again, it's called Economic Rights in Canada and the United States. It's an edited book, and it has chapters that deal with such things as, I'll quote some titles, welfare, racism, and human rights, movement to end poverty in the United States, international labor rights, the issue of disabilities, particularly mm. in Canada, another comparison between the rights of immigrant workers, and a wonderful chapter that deals with comparative health care between the uh, two countries. Published by University of Pennsylvania Press, paperback edition appeared uh, in this month, uh, Economic Rights in Canada and the United States, edited by me, Claude Welch, Jr., and a very distinguished Canadian woman scholar. Thank you, Claude. Thanks again. My pleasure. You've been listening to Claude Welch discuss economic human rights on Living Proof, the podcast series at the University of Buffalo's School of Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.